Welcome to Oncology Data Advisor. My name is Rahul Banerjee. I'm assistant professor of medicine at the Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center in Seattle. September is Blood Cancer Awareness Month, and as a result, we're doing several episodes this month around multiple myeloma. And today, it's my honor to speak with Dr. Gubaksh Kaur about uh, um, dosing of medications in myeloma, twice weekly, bi-weekly, or somewhere in between. Dr. Kaur is an assistant professor of medicine at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. She specializes in multiple myeloma and AL amyloidosis. Dr. Kaur, Gurbaksh, it's a pleasure to host you today. Thank you for having me, Rahul. Some of these things are topics that are near and dear to both of us. So, you know, let's jump right into it. So, you know, uh, the, the title is said twice weekly versus biweekly. I always get confused. Apparently, biweekly is every other week. Twice weekly is twice per week. It can be once weekly. Let's talk about all of those or more with bortezomib. How do you dose bortezomib during induction in your practice, and how does this differ from how maybe some of the trials were done? Well, historically, the trials were mostly done in the 1, 4, 8, 11, so twice a week dosing, right? Um, uh, th that's how the trials have been done. But in our clinical practice, we deviate from this. Um, and it's, it's, it's for several reasons. Um, so I, you, I dose uh, Valcade on a weekly basis whenever I do induction, but even in the relapse refractory settings, if I end up using a Valcade-based regimen, um, I prefer to keep Valcade only once a week. Um, this is to make it patient-friendly, number one, um, because, you know, myeloma is a chronic disease and they spend a lot of time with us and they don't need to be seeing us twice a week if they really don't need to be seeing us twice a week. So I factor, that's a big motivation for me actually. And the second is the side effects um, and particularly particular, particularly peripheral neuropathy. You know, um, the rates are as high as 30% um, when you do uh, twice a week. So I feel that why put somebody, you know, when somebody's living for 10 years, um, and, you know, their myeloma is under control, but then it's the chronic debilitating neuropathy that's impacting their quality of life. I think there's an onus on us as providers to take responsibility and to, um, and to be more mindful of how we schedule and give these drugs. Absolutely so. Because uh, I think it's important to remember, and I've seen this, you've probably seen this even more, right? That these, some of these patients have neuropathy for years afterwards, even when they're on lenalidomide, like Revlon maintenance thereafter. And it's like that bortezomib, the neuropathy can really, as you said, be quite debilitating to them. And so it makes sense for us to, to kind of de-escalate as we can. Um, and does that change whether someone's transplant eligible or transplant ineligible or for everybody who wants weekly bortezomib? Well, uh, if somebody's transplant ineligible, uh, then I prefer to use the Maya regimen, Daraptimumab plus mm -hmm. Revlimid plus dexamethasone. Myself um, as well. If somebody is transplant eligible, uh, I tend to use a quadruplet Daraptimumab, Revlimid, Valcade, and, and dexamethasone in all comers, irrespective of their high-risk status or not. Um, so that is my preference, and I still do once a week Valcade. Likewise, that's exactly what I do for both transplant eligible and ineligible. This is very helpful. Um, so then let's move, you know, stay on the topic of bortezomib and I'll switch to the other side. Let's say someone did undergo transplant. Um, do you ever use bortezomib for maintenance, uh, either because of LEN, uh, you know, refractoriness, or, or I should rephrase, LEN intolerance, or because I have high risk genetics? And if so, when you dose velcate in this setting, how do you dose velcate in terms of dosing and frequency? Um, I very infrequently use uh, Valcade maintenance, partially because many patients end up having peripheral neuropathy, even with once a week mm -hmm. dosing. It's mild. It might be grade one, but I do not want them to progress to grade two. 
So keeping that in mind, um, I will, um, I use it particularly in 414. Um, um, I, I also use, I can use a second generation PI such as Carfilzomib. And I tend to not do a weekly uh, regimen and not every week. I still do say once a week, but I might do it every two weeks. Um, um, just as a, sort of as a maintenance uh, uh, protocol. Very helpful. Yeah, so now we're going from twice weekly to bi-weekly in this setting and by every two weeks, and I agree. And so it's worth noting to the audience listening to this to think, I think you're correct from wrong, uh, Grabach, you know, the Emory group kind of first presented some of this like doublet maintenance, like V plus R maintenance, and they had once weekly Velcade. I practice very similar to you. That I'll space it out to every other week. And similarly for Carfils and Kyprolis, I'd do the same. Um, so let's talk about Kyprolis. This is actually very, each topic is kind of going from one by one by one to the next topic. So for carfilzomib, now let's say someone does have relapse disease after they've been on LEN maintenance. And let's say you're considering, you know, DARA-KD or ESA-KD. How do you dose carfilzomib for your patients and why? So Rahul, before I even go into this, I think that the, the topics, this topic is very near and dear to your and my heart is positive right. because, you know, historically we, we had a disease that really didn't have good treatment options. So I think the, the, the trials and it's, and it's always easy to be a Monday morning quarterback and reflect back and say, Hey, this approach is wrong. That is essentially not the case over here. Um, I think endeavors have been done by our colleagues um, who moved these therapies into, you know, clinical practice. Mm -hmm. And back then we didn't have good options. We didn't have, a, you know, a bispecific or a CAR-T weighting. So you wanted to get the biggest bang for your buck. And they may have driven why scheduling practices were the way they were recommended. And now we are in a different era and we need to adapt. So from taking, going that. from that into into uh, how I dose uh, carfilzomib, I still prefer to, and you know, with carfilzomib, the dosing is any everywhere. First of all, when it comes to the grams, is it 30, 20, 36 or 36, 36, day one and two, eight, nine, 15, 16, is it 27 milligram per meter squared on day, you know, every, every day, or is it 56 milligram per meter squared once a week, 56 milligram per meter squared um, uh, two days a week? to even 70 milligram per meter squared, um, you know, once a week. So look at, we have such degree of variability in the doses of it, in, 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 in how frequently we give it. Um, and, and we don't have a unified approach and, and that is what it is right now. Um, so I tend to, like I said, I do value quality of life and I like my patients to spend as much time away from my office and my practice as they can. Absolutely. So, uh, and so uh, without compromising their efficacy, right? So generally, uh, the first dose is 20 milligram per meter squared uh, on day one. And subsequently, I will transition into a 56 milligram per meter squared um, on the second week and the third week. So it's a weekly dosing, but it is I don't do twice a week dosing here as well. Um, and, and, and part of that is, you know, obviously quality of life and time away from the doctor's office. Um, and, and the second is this fear of, you know, many patients are weary of having the cardiac toxicity profile um, uh, that comes with, with carfilzomib and such as it can be simple as chest pain to shortness of breath to actually having systolic uh, dysfunction. Um, and, and we know that it, it's higher when the doses are higher, actually. Agreed. So I tend to not utilize the 70 milligram per meter squared unless I really need to. Somebody who's young has very high risk disease and uh, has an explosive relapse, 
Um, I think those are the settings where I would I do go for that. That's not to say I rule it out completely, um, but generally my go-to thing is my go-to regimen is fifty-six per milligram per meter square on a weekly basis. And on a once weekly basis, this is very elegant commentary. A couple of things you said, I'll just to draw attention to. I just hadn't thought of it that way. Yeah, you're right that there was a time when KRD or you know Ethera KD more recently that was kind of destination therapy for many of these patients, and there it makes sense to kind of hit the max tolerated dose of carfilzomib you can. We have better options and you know later relapses for sure. And you're right, that heart failure risk, the hypertension risk, the heart failure more than the hypertension, obviously, that scares patients, especially some of our older patients who are have some more comorbidities at baseline. And you're right, all those studies that show this heart failure, heart failure signal were typically 56 per meter squared twice weekly. It doesn't mean it doesn't happen at once weekly, but I agree with you. I think the dose really makes a difference, how much IV fluids makes a difference and so forth. So this is very, very helpful. Um, do you ever use 70, once per, 70 milligrams once per meter, 70 mg per meter squared once per week, the way the Arrow trial tried to do, or you do 50 once per meter squared? Um, I do. I have used 70 uh, in a very, you know, in the patient, like I said, the patient who desperately needs it, um, the one who has very explosive disease and high risk, and I need to get really, really good responses. Um, uh, I think those are the patients I tend to reserve that for. Maybe for my old, my older patients, I don't go for the 70 milligram per meter squared. My younger patients, I, I do um, um, with in the right context. Absolutely. Makes sense. Right. This context makes a big difference on how we approach our patients. So, um, you know, before we talked about these PIs, obertezomib and carcilzomib in the setting of, you know, we didn't have more advanced options. And now we do have advanced options. So CAR-T and bispecifics come to mind. Bispecifics are fascinating because I know you just said how carfilzomib dosing is all over the place. I would say bispecific dosing is also all over the place, mainly in terms of frequency. Um, and as you know, you know we're, we're filming this interview in September 15th, 2023. We now have three uh, bispecific antibodies that are approved, teclistamab, talquetamab, aranatamab. Um, let's talk about teclistamab because that's the one that I think you and I, but maybe you have the most experience with here as a BCMA targeting bispecific antibody. Um, how do you dose teclistamab? You know, not so much the, the step-up dosing period, but or let's forget about cycle one. From cycle two onwards, how do you dose teclistamab? How would you like to dose teclistamab? What makes you change the frequency of dosing? You know, how do you approach that for your patients? So, uh, you know, I think we're, we're, we're at an interesting juncture when it comes to bispecific therapy. Um, we're finally at a point where... Um, our decisions to whether somebody gets teclistamab or CAR-T is not really driven by availability, but more so by patient preference and what their biological needs are in okay. terms of disease, right? So um, my first preference is to go to CAR-T for patients who I think are candidates for it. And um, and then bispecific therapy is a second option because, you know, again, like I said, the theme of my practice is time away from the doctor. So you can enjoy your time away from my office and don't have to come there on a weekly basis. Um, but but that's not not everybody is going to get CAR T because of myriad of reasons that have been highlighted in in every publication or podcast online. So in that cases, we have to be practical and 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 by specific therapy becomes a very good option, a very response, you know, a treatment that has really really good response. Um, we do even do our step up very differently. We don't do the full, um, we don't follow, you know, we do it, I believe, one, three, and five, and our patients are out by seventh day. Um, just because hospital beds are um, always in crunch, and um, so we try to squeeze as much uh, time out of that as we can. His, up until this point, the majority of my patients who needed 
teclistimab are the ones who needed it once a week. As in, I didn't have the liberty to go to um, every two week uh, option or every four week option because their disease responded. It was, they responded and they actually relapsed off and I had to go to something else. Um, and these were patients who were waiting, who were on the waiting list for CAR T and, and all that once it got approved. Um, now we're going into a, a phase where, um, where I think that's going to change. And I think um, we have very little data when that we can space out dosing, right? That's just the reality of it. What would I like to have happen? I think we need to have a response-driven um, approach um, when it comes by specifics, and 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 that might that's partially driven because how good they are, the cost of what, how much they cost, and as well as the significant side effects that they carry, um, infections not being understated, right? So I would love an approach, and I might tailor my therapy, my my um, my my practice towards that. That if they achieve a stringent CR or they achieve an MRD negative response um, after a certain amount of time, I I may stop or I may change the frequency where a uh, frequency of the of of the bispecific. That's sort of how I foresee myself going into. The, you know, in the coming months when it comes to um, uh, the bispecific, when it comes to teclistamab. Agreed. This is very, very helpful. And I think what you're getting at is kind of a response-driven paradigm more than a time-driven paradigm. Obviously, a little bit of a mix of both, but I think you're right. Many of us in my life were used to like, all right, six months of this, six months of this. If you achieve this at six months, then do this. And what you're getting at absolutely makes sense that that benefit risk ratio, the benefit of this drug at weekly dosing versus the risks in terms of infections, where you're talking about CMV reactivation, weird viral things, you know, that kind of shifts over time. If someone's already in a CR, that benefit risk is now going more towards the risk with weekly dosing. So this makes sense. Um, you know, I guess maybe I'll, I'll, I'll go back to, you know, to wrap things up, kind of one of the themes you brought up kind of throughout this whole uh, uh, podcast is idea of kind of like time toxicity or, or you know, just the amount of time that people are stuck spending in clinic, uh, whether it be for twice weekly Velcade, which you avoid for that reason, twice weekly carfilzomib or once weekly teclistamab. Are there other, you know, strategies or things that you think can help with time toxicity or how do you spread the awareness to others in the community to start implementing this and not having patients come in so, so often the clinic? I think, you know, we, we can think all we want and we can have theories all we want, but we need to produce the data to change minds, to say, hey, this approach is equally effective if you do it my, this way and and still you will get the the, the efficacy that you want because, that, you know, mo all of us are well-intentioned and we don't want to compromise our patient's care and the response that they're going to get from a therapy. So, you know, you know, one of the things that you and I are doing are, is, you know, with our real world projects, um, we're doing the Flatiron real world database analysis. We've, we've looked at patients who've gotten Velcade um, um, uh, based regimens in terms of induction, and we've evaluated well, how often did they get once weekly? Um, how often did they get, or more, not even how often, but um, what are the patterns of prescribing Valkate in the community, in the academic centers, and then compare the efficacy, assess um, the, the side effect profile when it comes to peripheral, uh, peripheral neuropathy, and, and sort of make a case for it. I think what, that sort of evidence needs to be out there because it, it is not sexy uh, in today's day and world to do a study 
that's just going to say, hey, once weekly Velcade versus twice weekly Velcade, that's just not going to get funded. Um, there's bigger Great. questions to ask uh, uh, from a funding perspective, but um, uh, but I think the questions you and I are asking in this project will answer uh, that and will make a case for it. So I think we need to generate data to convince minds that this approach is okay and this approach is perfectly fine to pursue and 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 that's how we're gonna you know make change. I love that. Very prescient words of wisdom there. Yes, for anyone who's listening, not anyone, lots of you who are listening to this podcast or reading it, stay tuned. And Dr. Cora and I are working on some ideas around this to change some hearts and minds in favor of once weekly podium inhibitor dosing in terms of response or toxicity guided de-escalation of bispecific antibody dosing and so forth. So stay tuned. Uh, Gerbach, this has been awesome. I actually learned a lot, even though we've already worked together on a bunch of projects together already. So thanks again for your time. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Raul. As always, you're wonderful, and thank you for having me. Of course. And to all our readers, again, thanks again for uh, listening in or tuning in or reading into this. And uh, this has been uh, another episode of Oncology Data Advisor. Thank you all. Have a good day.